Welcome to another episode of Shortcast of a Coffee. Let me start this episode a little differently this time. The print matches. It couldn't possibly be anyone else. First of all, oh! enhance isn't a thing. Digital photos have a limited resolution. You can't just yell at a computer to get more detail. And secondly, there is no scientific proof that fingerprints are unique. Enough, Conover. And that is Adam Conover from the show Adam Ruins Everything. And he's actually right. Fingerprint has been a very debated topic over the years, and my next guest has done significant work in the field of 3D fingerprinting. Dr. Aklesh Laktakya, along with his co-researchers, works on a technique for creating 3D holograms of fingerprints. His work has been featured in the 2012 PBS documentary Forensics on Trial and CNN. He's among the biggest names in the field of electromagnetic fields and complex materials and has won many awards internationally for his research. In this episode, we talk about his early days as a graduate student in Utah, breakthroughs in 3D fingerprinting and his work with the US Department of State to design a new professional master's degree for Indian students in American universities. I will link all the details regarding this policy in the show notes. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Thank you, Dr. Laktakya, for joining the podcast. Um, I see that you were born in Lucknow in Uttar Pradesh in India and moved to the U.S. in the late 1970s after an undergraduate degree at Banaras Hindu University, now IIT BHU. You actually moved to Utah, quite the undiscovered territory back in the day, uh, especially from an immigrant perspective. How, how was college like in India and early life as an immigrant in, in a state like Utah? Well, <laughs> certainly Utah was not known to Indians then. Uh, when I became a student there in, I think, September 1979, I was told that there were precisely 65 Indian families in the entire state of Utah. Uh, I mean, Utah is not very highly populated, but even so, 65 was a very small number. So yes, you're right. In There were not very many Indians in Utah. I moved... Uh, Education in those days in India was perhaps different from what it is now. It was not project-based, for example. Uh, the, no professor could believe that undergraduates could do research. And I remember that very well because I actually did want to do research when I was... In those days at IIT BHU, the engineering program was a five-year program. And you started after the 11th grade, really. Although most People did start after 12th grade, but even so, it was a five-year program. And um, in the fifth year, I went to see a professor and I said, you know, I, I would like to do some research in this area. And he simply laughed. <laughs> and he said, you know, most of our faculty members don't do research. How can you do any research? And that was, uh, well, that was how it was. Okay. But uh, but I think that was generally true even in the United States in those days. Most undergraduates uh, were not involved in research. And that really started happening, let's say, from 2000 onwards, from the year 2000 onwards. Okay, um, Before that, uh, there were here and there places where the research was done. Uh, and I'm talking about STEM areas. Okay, I'm not talking about humanities and arts that I really don't know much about. Uh, but uh, yeah, and when I moved to Utah, it was quite a, quite a shock, if you will, um, <laughs> uh, moving from, from Varanasi to 
to and Lucknow and Delhi for that matter, three three cities. Okay, to Salt Lake City was a very different experience. But in one way, they were the same. Also, there was an excess of religion in Salt Lake City, just as there is excess of religion in India. In fact, even to this day, you know, and it probably has become even more than it used to be. Did that transform you in any way? The, the religious aspect of both? I, I, I became anti-religious. <laughs> oh, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Creates indigestion. You start uh, analyzing and you, know, you find out religion is certainly a matter of faith. Uh, right. Faith has no logic in it. Right. Uh, how was it, you know, being like a minority in, in Utah? Was it like, how, how welcome were people in those days? I mean, now it's very... very very welcome okay very welcome um i uh, obviously i knew nothing about salt lake city or rather i should say the only thing i knew was from a sherlock holmes story <laughs> okay uh, but that's that was about it but when i went there uh, i found that the university had uh, university of utah had a one month one week orientation program and uh, one of those days, we went to the main temple of the Mormon church, Mormon, uh, yeah. And we were very welcome there. And I uh, was very surprised at that point. Also, uh, the, the general population was very welcoming. Once they realized that you were an, uh, uh, a foreign student, they were very kind, uh, very kind, really. And the university had in those days uh, a program of host families. So they paired me with uh, with a family. And uh, well, first Christmas came and they invited me to Christmas dinner and which of course I had never attended before. And then we became very good friends. And that, can, that has continued to this day. Uh, I mean, it's been what, 44 years now and we are still very good friends. And every once in a while we visit and yeah, yeah, it's very nice. Yeah, my experience was also pretty similar. Uh, I know we spent our grad school days in two different eras, but then uh, I went to college in Virginia Tech and uh, people were so welcoming and people are so nice and um, very, I would say, honest in, in that part of the country. So that was a that was a fantastic experience. Uh, my audience is usually the age group, you know, between 20s and the 30s. So just to give them an idea, how was admission to the U.S. back in those days? I mean, now we have an information overdose with, you know, Internet and all of that. Like everybody, even in their 12th grade, know about how to get an admission. But how did it work out for you? Well, I actually had no intentions of coming to America. Uh but the fifth year broke when the fifth year began at in Banaras, I you know, I was going to appear for whatever, you know, Indian engineering services. And I also was going to appear for the IIM admission. And I also applied to for a PhD at Indian School of Science. Okay. Uh, and that was what I remember now. My, I may have applied to a couple of other things also. I just don't remember now. Okay. Uh, and in those days, they used to have a very long period of Durga Puja holidays in, uh, in Banaras. And I went to, of course, to my parents in Lucknow, came back. Uh, I think I came back a day earlier for whatever reason. Okay. 
came back a day earlier and I was just, you know, walking in front in the in front of the dormitories. All the dormitories were in a line and there were, I think, eight or nine of them. Uh, and walking and then a friend of mine, a, a colleague, okay, says to me, hey, Akhlesh, have you applied to any American university? And I said, no, I don't want to go to America. And he says, no, 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 it's not a, it's a bad idea not to apply. You know, uh, you should not have all your eggs in one basket. So he took me to his room and he gave me, in those days, you had aer aerograms. I don't know if young people have seen aerograms. They were basically... That's another version of Telegram? No, no, it's a sheet of paper. Used to be blue in color. Okay, and the the address was you had to write the address. There was a place to write an address, and there was a stamp that was pre-printed. Don't know how much it was, maybe a a rupee in those days, something like that, or or maybe even sixty paisa. Okay, and uh, you know you wrote on the other side, and then you folded it up, and when you folded it up, nobody could read what you had written, but but this was cheaper than uh, than an envelope. And considerably cheaper, I would say. So you, I, you know, I, he he gave me um, printed aerograms, okay, and these must he must have obtained them from I think U.S. EFI in those days, U.S. Educational Foundation in India, okay. And so you had to write your name and address, etc. You had to fill out a form and then send it to different universities and. These here, the stamp was not pre-printed. So you had to actually put a stamp, okay, and send it. And uh, then you waited to hear from the colleges, okay. Now, I, I don't know how much people know, particularly middle-class people know about life in those days, but uh, uh, sending out six or seven aerograms was expensive. <laughs> okay, <laughs> was expensive. Yeah expensive and when letters when when we got a reply back in about a month's time at least i got a reply back in a month's time and they said some university said well this is the procedure to apply and you have to you know uh, submit these forms whatever those forms were and these documents and and recommendation letters etc and you had to submit an application fee and the application fee i think was 25 dollars now those were, even if you were rich, finding dollars was very, very difficult. Okay. So you had to actually go to a bank and the bank would uh, give you, I mean, if you, if, if they decided to, okay, they would give you a bank draft. Okay. And the, then, then you send the bank draft, but $25 was a lot of money. I'm talking about about I think in those days a rupee was about maybe seven dollars. I'm sorry, the other way around. A dollar was about seven fifty. Okay, so twenty five times make it eight is nearly two hundred rupees, and I think my father's monthly salary in those days was seven hundred rupees. <laughs> okay, so. So some so so submitting a, a bank draft of about two hundred rupees per application was beyond my was beyond the means of me my my family and me. Now we couldn't do that. So I did submit to maybe two places where they said that uh, you could submit without the application fee and the application fee you could pay later. 
And one of them was the University of Utah. And the reason I wrote to the University of Utah was because they had a very famous professor there at that time. His name was Om Gandhi in electrical engineering. And his advisor, his PhD advisor was a man named Nagesh Vedya, who was a de department head of electronics engineering in IIT BHU in those days. And so when I had gone to see Professor Vedya, he said, yes, apply to Utah. My, my former student, Om Gandhi, is there. Okay, so I said, all right, fine. So I applied and they accepted the application without an application fee. So that was nice. Of course, when I arrived in Salt Lake City, I had to pay that $25 fee. But that was a different matter. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think once you move, you can find means to... Oh, I, I, and finding information was extremely hard, extremely hard. There used to be a publication from UNESCO, I think. It was called The World, the World of Learning. Uh, Two-volume work, if I remember correctly. Each volume probably had a thousand pages, okay, hardbound. And the only copy I found was in BHU Library. BHU Library was actually a regional repository for United Nations, and I think still is. So this two-volume work was available, and you know, you could find information on all, all U.S. universities, including departments and who are the faculty in the department, and et cetera. But looking up a book is very different from Googling. Okay. Looking up a book means that you have to flip many, many pages before you come to something that is of importance or of interest to you, right? So, yeah, that was very different. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I'm always fascinated by the early immigrant lives of people who moved, you know, back in the 60s and the 70s. It's it's not even that much uh, that I find, uh, particularly from Facebook these days, uh, many young people, and it doesn't matter where they are from, but here let's talk about India. They have no concept of how difficult it was to get information. So I frequently see uh, uh, young people writing, oh, why did leader XYZ from 1940, 1950, 1980 not do this? Well, for a very simple reason, by the time they would get any information, reliable information, Probably five, six, ten days had passed, <laughs> and if you if they had to go from uh, let's say uh, Calcutta to Peshawar, that was probably a ten day journey or something like that. Okay, okay. So what used to happen then was very different, and I was not even born in that time. I was born in nineteen fifty seven, so I saw a somewhat faster pace of life, but it was incredibly slow compared to today. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you see these armchair experts, you know, comment about leaders back in those days. But I think we all need to give that consideration of timeline and the, the situation back in those days uh, about their decisions. Um, yeah, uh, I think this this entire section will itself need an episode, but I would like to move to some of your research. You know, some of your recent research focuses on this thing called 3D fingerprinting. Uh, for an average person like me, I have always imagined uh, fingerprinting as like a 2D thing. Uh, could you explain a bit more about 3D fingerprinting? So fingerprints are actually 3D. Okay, so it's fairly easy to see. Um, you know, sweat for a while, okay, and then deposit your a fingerprint on a piece of aluminum or glass or something like that. And 
examined with a simple microscope, not, not even a high-powered microscope, even a magnifying glass could do, and you will see ridges. So you will see ridges. So ridges are, by their very nature, three-dimensional. Okay, so fingerprints are three-dimensional. What happens is that uh, when we take photographs of those, they become two-dimensional. Okay, and for that reason, uh, when fingerprints are stored in a in a repository, you know, for example, if you uh, if you go to the police for whatever reason, okay, and the police fingerprint you, okay, now those are stored as two-dimensional impressions, you know, inky impressions, okay, and these days, of course, that is done that is an optically, but even so, they are two-dimensional. Well, two-dimensional impressions actually miss something very important, that there is a three-dimensional structure. There's a third dimension, okay? And that becomes important when you look at partial fingerprints. So there was a, there was a famous case in, I think, 2007, okay, when uh, somebody blew up a, a, a train in Madrid. Madrid, yeah, famous famous thing that happened. Okay, well, they the police found a garbage bag containing materials that must have been used in that bombing, and they found a fingerprint. Except it was a partial fingerprint, and of course, they the Spanish police, you know, flashed that image to various their counterparts elsewhere, and the FBI located a person in Seattle who had that fingerprint or whose fingerprint matched, okay? And they, of course, went, you know, and arrested him. Now, it turns out that he was just the right, quote-unquote, the right kind of person. He was a lawyer who had a white lawyer, white American lawyer, who had married a Middle Eastern woman and converted to Islam. So that fed into the narrative of those days that such a person could have done something. But this man was as peaceful as they can be. And he said, no, he had not done anything like that. And then finally, the Spanish police actually located the actual perpetrator who was, I think, a Moroccan immigrant. Okay. Yes. And they located him in Spain itself. Okay. And now this created a huge international problem. An innocent person had been arrested in, uh, in 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 Washington State, and uh, for something he had not done anything. Okay, and the, the the toll on his family and him must have been immense. So, as it turns out, that the National Academies at uh, that time they were looking into problems that forensic science has or had in those days, still has to some extent, and they commissioned a report on that. Uh, and as a result of that, forensic investigation has become more scientific. Okay, so I had a colleague here uh, who was a, a who was a forensic scientist, and I was talking to him about something like something some other stuff, and he says, "Yeah, hey, Akhlesh, you help me with uh, with with uh, identifying fingerprints." And I said, "What's the problem? I mean, I, I didn't know anything about it." Okay, and he said, "You see, when people touch something, they leave a fingerprint behind, but many times that fingerprint cannot be seen, so they are called latent fingerprints. It cannot be seen, and if you cannot see it, then of course you cannot use it to identify the individual." So I said, "Well, you know what? 
let me try something. And uh, I had a colleague who was visiting me, incidentally from Spain uh, at the time. And I said to him, Raul, why don't you try this, depositing uh, this kind of a thin film on top of a fingerprint? And the results were, were in the minds of my colleague, my forensic scientist colleague, astonishing. He said, this is fantastic. So that is how I started working on fingerprint research. So did that for a few years. And then I also, uh, then I also worked with a genetic, uh, forensic geneticist, because when you touch something, there is a good chance you will leave two or three cells behind. And those cells, of course, contain genetic material from you. And therefore that too can be used for identification. And so I worked with her and she was, she's of Indian origin incidentally, okay. And then I had the idea that we should actually look at the topography in the third dimension and see if we can discover unique characteristics. Because then in that case, we are not bound by the partial fingerprints. So criminals don't leave behind their full fingerprints, right? They leave behind partial fingerprints. So we looked into that and the Department of Homeland Security had a program I called my colleague Partha Banerjee in the, at the University of Dayton and said, Partha, can you take holograms? And he said, yes. So he took holograms and now we are doing that research. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, any any significant breakthroughs? Oh, that we should never be involved in. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's a, you see, those are issues that uh, that scientists should not be involved in uh, for a very simple reason that these are legal issues. Okay, so what we end up doing is we create a technique and then we give the technique to our, to a department, in this case, the Department of Homeland Security, but also, for example, the National Institute of Justice or FBI. They are the people who then take that technique and see how well it can be applied in the field. Okay, and as Time passes, data accumulates, and the uh, reliance, reliability uh, grows. Okay. So if you look at, say, early 1980s, uh, genetic information was not used to identify uh, people in court cases. It started being accepted about 1992, 93 only. And even, so, even today, it is not, it's not considered smoking gun evidence, close to it, but not quite, because contamination can take place. So, so yeah, that's I think, a, an entirely different issue. Yeah, one of the cases that uh, that I remember is the Golden State Killer in California. Um, I think he did all his atrocities back in the 80s and the 90s, and thanks to DNA, he was, he was found. So, yeah. Uh, you're currently with the U.S. Department of State. Uh, can you tell me a bit about your assignment as such and, and what you do for them? I know there may be limitations, but within the limitations. Well, I I was asked by the State Department to examine India's national education policy 2020 and come up with ways whereby U.S. and Indian um, universities can have strong academic collaborations. So in that context, first of all, I had to study the policy itself, which took some time. And then I uh, 
I was asked to come up with a program which could be easily implemented and which would be beneficial to both United States and India. Okay, so I came up with this professional master's program there. And the, 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 the details are now publicly available, of course, okay, so you can find that. But what will happen as a result is that new types of master's degrees would be created. These will be professional master's degrees, and they will be uh, one year long, okay? And students will come here from India, and they will take this one-year-long spe special master's degree, and then they can work, okay? So these master's degrees can be in some things like, for example, satellite guidance and control, or experimental genomics, or healthcare informatics, or telemedicine, no, no, things like that. So these are not going to be in electrical engineering or mechanical engineering, okay? Uh, but they would be uh, they would be like focused on the application. And the aim is that the people who uh, take who 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 are students in this program, then within a year actually become highly employable in industry. They become industry ready. That's the idea. Yeah. So this program, of course. Uh, is uh, has been welcomed by both Indian and American universities. And, uh, you know, I, my, my job at this point is to kind of bring them together and then let them talk because American universities have a tremendous autonomy. Okay, so there is nobody can dictate to them what they should do and what they should not do, okay. Uh, even when the American universities are owned by a state, they still have tremendous autonomy and academic freedom. So they are the ones who decide what they want to do. But I think here they are almost universally, they're seeing a great uh, deal of benefit. Mm -hmm. And you know what? A rising tide lifts all boats, right? So the more people are highly educated and productive, the better for everyone. To who do you present uh, such a proposal? Do you present it to the universities or the Department of State? Well, I presented it to the Department of State and uh, they have constituted a committee to uh, for both countries. Okay. And this committee will, of course, start doing that uh, much more effectively. But the committee is not yet completely formed. I, I, I'm the chair of that committee. Okay. So that will happen sometime in the very near future. But in the meantime, I am talking, I'm talking to American universities, I'm talking to Indian universities and trying to put them together. Yeah, I'll definitely link the document in my show notes so that my audience can go and uh, check it out. I think it's a very, very interesting um, time and interesting way of collaborating two of the world's biggest nations when it comes to STEM education. I, I completely agree with you. Uh, and you know, what's interesting about this is one should think of it as like an executive MBA program. Okay. You have concentrated information given to you on a very specific topic. Okay. And it's a, it's a, it's a 12 month long study period and that's all you do more or less. Okay. But then when you come out, you are really ready to do something in industry more or less right away. I mean, you still will have a little bit of, of, of cultural change, 
because if you have been at a university most of your adult life, which is what my, most students will be at that point, okay, they will find a cultural change in industry. But uh, it makes them definitely more ready, more employable, and and it should uh, they should become productive much more easily, much more quickly. Yeah. Any particular reason that this is? I mean, from the looks of it, it seems more multidisciplinary. The fields that have been chosen ha- has has the whole advent of AI and the proliferation of AI in the recent times made a significant impact on this decision to focus more on multidisciplinary aspects than core electrical engineering or core computer science. I I should actually go back to about 150, maybe more years ago. Uh, I don't remember the name of this poet. There was an American poet who wrote a poem, The Six Blind Men of Hindustan. Okay. In those days, India was called Hindu, Hindustan, but they, but in Europe, I think that sometimes we call it Indostan. Okay. And so the poem is, goes something like this, that, a, that, a, that a, an elephant came to town. And uh, of course, you know, people flocked to see it, but there were six blind men who lived in a house and they also wanted to quote unquote, see the elephant. Okay. But of course they can't see. Okay. So their, their caretaker, whosoever these people were caregivers, they took them to the elephant and one of them touched the elephant's uh, uh, tail and said, oh, an elephant is like a rope. Okay, and another person touched a foot of the elephant. Oh, an elephant is like a pillar. And another one touched a ear and said, hmm, elephant is like a fan. You see, it was the same elephant, but you saw different aspects of it. And you say, hey, you know what? This is what the elephant is. Now, our problems, which are, which can, of course, be addressed scientifically and technologically, are now multidisciplinary. You look at a car, for example, a car, of course, drives you or you can drive a car from point A to point B, except nowadays a car can drive you from point A to point B, right? And there are collision avoidance radars, for example, and uh, and there is a there is a, some sort of a, an internet insight available, okay? Okay. And other things that are available. So a car is much more than a simple chariot, <laughs> Okay. A car today is very different from what it used to be even uh, 1950. Okay, very different. Okay, uh, so our, the same thing has happened with various other issues in life. They have become multidisciplinary, and people study electrical engineering or or or, or, or chemical engineering or what whatever. Okay, and that sounds like a single discipline. But when you are assembling or when you are creating a product, think of something as simple as an iPhone. Okay, it's an electronic product, right? But the glass it has is more or less shatterproof. And that means material science is involved, for example, right? Okay, so you can just look at something, something this small and realize how many different disciplines have to go into this. So can anybody be a master of iPhones? Well, perhaps we could think of a of a program, which could be to get a master's in compact telecommunication devices. How about that, right? Okay. Now this person will 
will study iPhones or Androids or whatever, okay? But from a completely different viewpoint, they are, they, they are not studying the basic physics or the basic chemistry or the basic mechanical engineering or, or whatever, okay? Instead, they're saying, my aim is to produce a product like this. All that I need to know for it, I should know quickly. So that brings into, into consideration an idea of education called just-in-time education. Okay, so you want to do something complicated, quote unquote, and you need to know something and you don't know much about it. Can you find out something about it? This is where the internet comes in. This would be almost unthinkable 40 years ago. Okay, but today the internet does come in very easily. And now with AI, okay, you can, uh, so to say, offload some kind of work to AI and they can that can collect information for you and at least present it to you in a digestible form. Whether it is completely correct or not, that you still have to decide, okay? And so the human brain cannot be eliminated, hopefully, okay, from this. But, uh, but the, the complexity of the problem is such that it has to be multidisciplinary. So the topics were not decided. They were selected as examples. And as time goes on, I think universities uh, and students will say, hey, you know what? We need uh, a master's program dedicated to this type of a complex system or that type of a complex system. Today, I was I was looking at, at uh, there was a request from a major university in upstate New York. And I said, you know what? I didn't think of it, but food is very complex. I'm talking about food engineering here. Food is very complex, okay? So that could be a professional master's degree in food processing. I'll, I'll see what I can do about it. <laughs> yeah, it's so constantly evolving. Um, yeah. Great insights, uh, Dr. Laktakia. I think I would like to end this podcast by knowing a bit more about you. What do you do for fun and any retirement plans? No, no retirement plans. I'm having the time of my life. <laughs> that, that's that's clearly the word of someone who's absolutely passionate about what they do yeah but what do i do i used to collect stamps i used to watch cricket of course i couldn't watch cricket for uh, until about 1996 or so here because you know there was no cricket. broadcasting rights yeah nothing yeah, like that but uh even now i don't watch cricket anymore i don't have the time to do that but i certainly have esp and click info <laughs> you know every five ten minutes i look at the score so that's that's fun coincidentally uh, my previous guest used to work for click info and oh. uh, we actually went through the history of click info um i'll also have that in the show notes uh but it's it yes been click info in itself has a fascinating history um yeah. indeed you know uh I used I had a colleague, uh, a research collaborator, Werner Weigelhofer, who was in the Department of Mathematics at the University of Glasgow, and uh, he he was Austrian, but somehow had developed an interest in cricket, and we started collaborating. I think in 1989 or so, but by 1992 we had an internet connection. Of course, it was teletype type of a connection. Okay. And early in the morning when I would wake up, there would be an email from him giving me some of the scores. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Things man. have changed dramatically. Dramatically, yeah. I mean, now there are lots of broadcasters here in the US. I mean, cricket has 
becoming bigger in the US as well. So yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Laktake. It was so much fun knowing about your plans, your life in general and uh, about early immigrant life in Utah. Very, very fascinating. And I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you. Well, that was Dr. Raklesh Laktakia. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I'll be back with another guest next time. Till then, peace.